This is episode 160 of the Swallow Your Pride podcast, and today we have two guests. We have the wonderful Kelsey Day. She is an acute care SLP who specializes in dysphagia management for the medically complex, critically ill, and tracheostomy-dependent populations. She received her Master of Science from Northwestern University and now serves as the lead SLP at California Hospital Medical Center, a trauma and stroke center in downtown LA, where she supervises a team of nine SLPs. Kelsey is a mentor for the medical SLP Collective, guest lecturer at Cal State University Fullerton, and presenter of multiple continuing education courses. She is an invited speaker on several podcasts, including Swallow Your Pride and Speech Uncensored, and dedicates her career to the education of new clinicians. Kelsey is joined by Catherine Wu, who is an acute care SLP specializing in management of dysphagia in medically complex populations. Kat received her Master of Arts from George Washington University and now practices at California Hospital Medical Center, a trauma and stroke center in downtown LA, where she participates in daily intensive care unit multidisciplinary rounds and provides monthly training to register nurses on the SLP role in acute care. Catherine was recently invited as a guest speaker on a COVID-19 panel for graduate students at Cal State LA. Welcome to the Swallow Your Pride podcast. I'm your host, Teresa Richard. I'm a board-certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders, a mobile fees business owner, and founder of the MedSLP Collective. This podcast is all about delivering the latest evidence-based practice to medical SLPs everywhere. Whether you're a new clinician seeking tangible tools for treatment or a seasoned vet stuck in a rut, my goal is to help ditch the old school ways of the past that no longer serve you or your patients, to reinvigorate your passion for our field, to broaden your knowledge about our scope of practice, and to inspire you to practice at the top of your license. So if you're listening, I encourage you to swallow your pride, be open and willing to learn, because let's face it, your patients deserve that kind of care. With that, let's dive right in. And as I mentioned, our Kelsey Day is a mentor in the MedSLP Collective, and she also will be presenting at our upcoming MedSLP Summit. Uh, we did this back in the summer, and it was amazing. We are doing it again starting on November 30th. It is completely free, and it is five nights of 20 different presenters, so 20 different presentations about all areas of medical SLP. Uh, so this will be put on by the MedSLP Collective. It is completely Completely free for you to watch. Uh, if you would like to earn CEUs, you can for just a small fee of $34 uh, to get 1.0 ASHA CEUs. But if you would just like to come hop on and watch 20 presentations from some amazing clinicians, it's completely free to sign up. You can go to metaslpcollective.com forward slash summit, and that will be uh, November 30th through December 4th. It'll be from 8 to 10 p.m. Eastern every evening. So uh, we hope you'll join us. Head over to metaslpcollective.com forward slash summit to sign up. This episode is sponsored by Utterly Financial. Utterly is the company behind Craig Goldschlager. Craig is an experienced financial specialist that works exclusively with us, SLPs, and private practice practitioners across the country. Over the last few months, I've received tons of favorable feedback from listeners who've contacted Craig in two main areas, implementing high-quality disability insurance. SLPs get disabled all the time. Don't think it can't happen to you. You need a policy you can trust to deliver should the worst happen. He's also utilized his proven framework for 
buying or selling a mobile fees business or private practice. 98% of business owners do not know what their business is worth. Craig's process will help you receive fair and reasonable value for your practice. If you don't have a disability insurance policy or a roadmap for buying or selling a private practice, you should contact Craig today. Craig is opening up his calendar to listeners of the SYP podcast and offering a free 30-minute consultation. You should take advantage of this. Visit utterlyfinancial.com forward slash SYP to set up a time with him. Utterly Financial, U-T-T-E-R-L-Y-F-I-N-A-N-C-I-A-L.com forward slash SYP. And I can personally attest to working with Craig and this guy knows his stuff. So reach out to him if you'd like to set up a consultation. Just a quick disclaimer that all statements and opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect on the organizations associated with the speakers and are their own opinions solely. Good morning, ladies. Good morning. morning. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having us. Yeah, we're really excited to do this together. How fun. (laughs) Yes. So we have the wonderful Kelsey Day, who you've all heard a a few times before, and she brought her wonderful work colleague, Kat, to join us today as well. So Kat, if you want to tell the people who you are. Hi, everyone. I'm Kat. I work with Kelsey downtown in Los Angeles at California Hospital. Been working together for the last few years now. Um, And she invited me to be on this today. So I'm really excited to be here. Thank you so much. Yes. Awesome. Kelsey, anything else you want to update the people on? I mean, also, aside from just working with me, she's a stellar (laughs) clinician with a lot of experience in dysphagia, in ICU management, in trach and vent patients, in trauma. Um, She's a very, very skilled clinician. So, (laughs) yes, but also a great work wife. (laughs) Excellent. Excellent. Kat, where are you from? Where'd you go to school? And tell tell us some details. I am from the East Coast, still slowly getting used to west coast best coast motto um (laughs) i went to george washington university and i moved here right after finishing grad school for my cf did you guys know each other and because kelsey you went there too did you (laughs) it's a a small world we did not know each other so i went to george washington university for my undergraduate schooling and then Catherine's a little younger than me and went for her graduate schooling so we missed each other um but yeah it was probably just fate Absolutely. Cool. Awesome. Okay. So what are we going to talk about today? So we are here to talk about the speech pathologist's role in the emergency department. Um, And, you know, I think this is a topic that no one really talks about. And I think a lot of even our own colleagues would say, do we have a role in the emergency department? And I, I do think it's up for debate. But yeah, we're here to kind of present our side, why, why, why we go into the emergency department and what we think our role is, because, you know, there, it's not so clear cut. There isn't really any research on it. Yeah. So we were talking a little bit before and Kelsey's like, you know, how you, you know, ask what, you know, to name a research paper. And she's like, there really isn't any. So I think if you guys are, you know, rifling through show notes, looking for lots of research papers to support this, you're not going to find them. So um, right. That's why they are here to, to talk about it. Right. I think we're kind of at, you know, the, the forefront. I think that something that Kat and I are constantly doing is in our clinical practice, asking if we're not doing our 
if we're not doing something, asking ourselves, why aren't we doing it, right? So I, you know, historically have preached early, early, early intervention with tracheostomy and ventilator dependent patients. And you've previously asked me, you know, how early is too soon? And I've said like the OR, right? So I'm always preaching early, early, early. So that's kind of transitioned also into, well, do we have space in the emergency department? Like, does that make sense for us? How is that too early? Um, so yeah, that's just kind of, I think, the the way that we're heading in the acute world of speech pathology. Beautiful. Awesome. I think, yeah, I think when I think of like, what is our role in the ER immediately, I think, well, you know, maybe our role is to help nursing with, you know, like the Yale swallow protocol or three ounce water challenge, things like that. But I think you guys have a much bigger role. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I do think that that is probably the primary role that we have is going to be in assessing those stroke patients. So any patient who presents to the emergency department as a potential stroke or TIA patient per the Joint Commission requires a swallow screening before anything is administered orally. And that includes oral foods, oral liquids, oral medications. So, you know, this can be accomplished in multiple ways and it's facility dependent. And some facilities have require speech pathology evaluation before anything's passed PO. Some facilities implement nursing swallow screenings. Some facilities do a combination of the two. Um, But we certainly have a role in assisting our nursing colleagues and physician colleagues in evaluating patients for dysphagia in the emergency room when they present with stroke and TIA. Awesome. Yeah. And I mean, if we want to elaborate on that too a little bit, so patients who pass nursing swallow screenings, at least at our facility, are then able to initiate oral diets and oral medication administration if the physician orders it but speech pathology is coming to evaluate the patient regardless. However, if a patient fails the nursing swallow screen in the emergency department, for example, then those patients are held strict NPO, no exceptions, no medications until speech pathology evaluates. So Kat and I, we were just kind of having a little healthy debate, I think, about well, so how do, does that mean we have to wait until the patient hits the floors to be able to do that evaluation if they fail the nursing swallow screen? Or Right. So then if we're not seeing the patient until they get upstairs in the afternoon, we and then their NPO, we decide that they need an instrumental swallow, then they have to wait until the next day. And so it really delays our, the level of care that we can provide the patient unless we're seeing them immediately as soon as we get the order while they're still in the ED. Yeah. So I think, you know, that was just kind of within our department, more of a clinical discussion or debate that we had was, so what would, what would be the benefits of us going down to the ED versus what would be the risks? And I think in our discussion, the benefits seem to really outweigh the risks, right? Because yeah, I guess, I guess that's what I was going to ask is what, what risks were you finding? Well, I mean, there are certainly some challenges in us going to the ED. I think one risk kind of goes back to the fact that in the emergency department, the medical record is still very incomplete. So I think that physician, or, sorry, we might not have a full picture yet of mm-hmm. the patient. Like the physician might have just seen the patient a few minutes before us. There's no H&P yet. So really like talking to the nurse is the most important, trying to get their um, information and then um, 
yeah, trying to get obtain information from nursing, from ED physicians, but it's just, it can be a challenge. It can be a risk to not have the full picture of what's happening with the patient before you visit them, of course. And then obviously patients might not be that stable in the emergency department. Their condition might be evolving. Um, they might be actively receiving TPA and I'm not evaluating patients as they're receiving TPA. <laughs> we'll let them finish their transfusion before we start there. But um, yeah, so I think that the, the risk is lack of information um, on, the, on the case, lack of brain imaging, and then also the evolving medical status of the patient. Okay, so you guys just decided that despite that, it was still best to proceed. I do think so. Yeah. We use our clinical judgment. I mean, if we show up to the emergency department and our patient looks like their respiratory status is tenuous and they might be heading towards intubation, obviously we're not seeing that patient. We can lay eyes on the patient and say, no, not at this time. We'll wait until they're more improved from a medical standpoint. But many patients are perfectly stable in the emergency department to be evaluated. And if they can do a nursing swallow screen, then they should be able to also do our evaluation. Yeah, yeah. Yes, that's the point of that, right? Exactly. Exactly. And I think that kind of goes back to, I mean, something that Kat and I also talk about all the time is what is the purpose of the clinical swallow evaluation, right? And it's not a feeding test. It is not just giving patients food and liquid. It's a risk assessment. Um, It is determining the probability that a patient has dysphagia. So just because a patient's medical status isn't entirely stable doesn't mean that we can't make that risk assessment and that judgment of the probability of this patient having dysphagia and needing an instrumental in their future. Yep. Awesome. So we spoke a lot just now about, you know, one population who we see really commonly in the ED, and that's the stroke population. Um, But I do think that there's also room for us in other populations in the emergency department. Definitely. We're getting consulted very quickly on patients who are coming in for dysphagia symptoms. It could have been an acute choking event, could have been like angioedema. There are also patients coming in with dysphagia symptoms for several days, even a week before they come in. And so the physicians really want us there immediately to figure out what's going on, what instrumental swallows are indicated before we're waiting a day or two before they get a room upstairs and then we have to prolong and delay um, access to instrumentals for that patient as well. Absolutely. So if a patient shows up to the emergency room, like I've had several already this week, present to the emergency department for dysphagia, like patients coming in saying, you know, I've been having dysphagia symptoms. I've been unable to swallow for two, three days now. It's been progressively getting worse. And now I can't even tolerate liquids and I can't, I, I can hardly swallow my saliva. These patients obviously need to be admitted because they have no nutrition or hydration route. And these patients will 1000% require an instrumental eval. And just like Kat was saying, if we wait until they reach the floors to even visit the patient, just to interview them, to ask about their symptoms and to determine which instrumental study is best, that could significantly delay care. Yeah, so if we can even just get to the emergency department, I like to, when we get these orders in the EMR, I like to open the chart immediately and just screen the chart just to see, is this someone in the ED who's awaiting for me because they're presenting with signs of dysphagia or is this something that could wait until later? So it's not that we always go down there, but it's that we should be opening the charts and screening them and then making 
our call on if the patient would benefit from us getting down there and scheduling their studies as soon as possible. Awesome. I think also we wanted to talk a little bit about the emerging role I think that we can play during this pandemic that we're in. So in the COVID-19 pandemic, Obviously, I mean, it's regional and it's varying by time, but many hospitals are overwhelmed in terms of their capacity. So the telemetry beds, ICU beds, even medical surgical beds might be full in the hospital. And so patients might present to the emergency department with any number of symptoms that our patients typically present with, right? But there might not be any beds available to admit the patient to the floor. So if there are no ICU beds, no telemetry beds, no medical surgical beds, and there's a global pandemic, so all hospitals nearby are also full, the patient can't even transfer from the emergency room to a local nearby hospital for a bed, then our patients are waiting in the emergency department for during this pandemic, we've seen 24 hours, 48 hours, more than 48 hours holding beds in the emergency department just because there's nothing available. So at that point, I think the emergency department just kind of becomes an extension Mm -hmm. of any other unit of the hospital. You know what I mean? I, I definitely have had to go more frequently during this pandemic than before just because of the lack of beds. And that's just what what we need to make work right now. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, But I will say also, we've been discussing a lot about dysphagia, and definitely we also have a role in cognitive communication evaluations in the emergency department as well. So like we talked about with stroke populations, any rule-out CVA or TIA patient, we're doing these evaluations. And they're even more important in the emergency department. As we said, we might not have a lot of history and physical or their history yet. Uh, There might not be family members, especially during this pandemic, we haven't been allowing the visitors to come in. So it's really hard to get an idea of exactly what's going on with the patient and trying to communicate with them if they have a severe aphasia or dysarthria becomes increasingly difficult too. As we know with the NIH scale, the nurses have to differentiate um, dysarthria versus aphasia, sometimes expressive versus receptive. And of course, we go through a lot of schooling to be able to differentiate those and nurses, our nursing colleagues do sometimes have some difficulty with that. So it's really great for us to be able to be there and kind of lead them in the right way because of course the NIH stroke scale, they're constantly reevaluating. We need to make sure the scores are exactly accurate um, mm-hmm. with a, yeah. aphasia severity, dysarthria severity, maybe helping to implement AAC boards as soon as they're here, if they're having that much difficulty communicating. Um, And then even aside from stroke patients, anyone coming in with an altered mental status, encephalopathy, maybe history of dementia, physicians sometimes need to know if the patient is able to, um, if they have the capacity to consent. Obviously, our role isn't to determine that necessarily, but sometimes they like to consult us to do our full cognitive communication evaluation, and our results will help them inform inform their their decision. decision. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So if we're evaluating patients in the emergency department for for a swallow, for dysphagia, we can certainly, you know, attempt our cognitive communication evals. And well, I mean, Kat and I also were just talking a lot about the barriers to trying to do that <laughs> in the emergency department. And it's very chaotic. There could be a code going on. There's security everywhere. 
patients walking in and out through the curtains. It can definitely be a challenge down there. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely a distracting environment, but it is possible. And I do think that, you know, while we're not doing a full battery in the emergency department in terms of cognition, it, it, we do have a role in assisting, facilitating the communication between the patient and their care providers. And when patients are aphasic and dysarthric and can't functionally communicate to their emergency room physician why they're there, then we have a role in facilitating that discussion. And you know, some questions that are, that seem small, but are so important to the patient's care, especially in the stroke population, like when was your last known well time? And I, if you work with stroke, you know about last known well time. So the last time at which you were functioning at your normal or your baseline. And this can be something that patients have difficulty communicating when they're presenting with aphasia and dysarthria, right? So if we're down there and we're witnessing this exchange between the patient and we're noticing communication breakdowns and we could facilitate something where the patient could give more accurate information to the physician, that could significantly alter the plan. Because as you know, I mean, the last known well time affects their ability to receive TPA for acute strokes. So we can certainly, you know, play a role with our physician and nursing colleagues and trying to get the most accurate information possible from our patients and from the family. Do you guys feel like you play more of like a consultative role in the ER or do you really feel like you're actively, I guess, evaluating patients there? I, I mean, I think a look both definitely, but definitely we're, we're, we're being consultants. And I do think that in acute care in general, we just play more of a consultant role. Obviously we're, we're also diagnosticians and we're therapists. We treat, but our role, I'm never going to say our role in the emergency department is therapeutic, right? <laughs> like I'm not, a, right, right, I'm right, not right, accomplishing right. rehabilitation in the emergency department, but our role is definitely diagnostic. It's consultative and it can be just educational for patients who sometimes patients present to the emergency room and are don't need to be admitted right they need to just be discharged home and they need to see an outpatient speech pathologist for example so we can also offer education to patients and families on on services that they can receive um, especially i think it depends on the geographic location and the socioeconomic status of the patients um, but sometimes emergency departments function almost as some patients primary care physicians if they don't if they don't have good medical care mm -hmm. so we can and that's something we were discussing earlier as well, this idea of like social admits where patients are coming in presenting with some weakness, but there's negative acute workup, probably some exacerbation of long-term conditions. Maybe family brings them in because they just don't know how to take care of them anymore. So if there are these patients and physicians, well, we do act as the consultant kind of to say like, oh, does this patient seem appropriate to discharge home from the ED? What are their functional concerns, safety concerns? Do they have insight? Are they able to care for themselves or is family caring for them? And we can help guide physicians with these discharge planning um, as well. Right. And that, that role there is really interdisciplinary because when we were trying to, you know, prepare for this talk and look for evidence on our role in the emergency department, I don't know if anyone else out there can find something, but I cannot find 
anything really about speech pathology role in the emergency department, but there is some emerging literature coming out, especially in, I think we saw Canada and Australia mm -hmm. coming out, Sweden, <laughs> on occupational therapy and physical therapy role in the emergency department. And a lot of that has to do with helping physicians determine safe discharge dispositions. So identifying functional deficits, the patients who are at a high fall risk who might be readmitted in the next few days or weeks if they were to go home to maybe an unsafe location. So we can play a role with PT and OT in helping the physicians determine safe discharge destinations also um, from the emergency department. Sounds like a journal article that you guys need to write. Up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, so talk to me, talk to me, I guess, about the logistics. Like Kat, you mentioned just, a, you know, a lot of conditions that we definitely do have a role in, but talk to me about kind of how you, you did infiltrate the ED. You know, I, I would assume that some physicians, some nurses may not think you have a role there or may be welcoming or we may be stepping on toes. So I know a lot of people, you know, listening are probably going to be like, oh, I, you know, I think we have a huge role in our hospital, but how do we even start these conversations? How do we get them on board to agree to allow us to, to help them? Well, I would definitely say the SLP role in the emergency in the emergency department has definitely changed significantly. Um, definitely when I was in graduate school, we never learned about going to the emergency department ever. I don't know if I ever heard that term my entire um, course, but uh, actually I'm going to let Kelsey talk about it because Again, I didn't know anything about it when I started at California Hospital, and Kelsey kind of showed me the light. So. <laughs> yeah, well, so I think that in terms of kind of getting started in the emergency department and the logistics of it, the first consults that a speech pathologist might receive in the ED are probably going to be for stroke protocols, right? So consults that are placed per protocol should come in as soon as the patient receives the diagnosis that triggers the protocol, right? So if a patient is admitted for stroke, then the protocol should trigger speech PT, OT consults as soon as that patient gets that diagnosis in the ED. So I would argue that there are a lot of speech pathologists out there who who frequently receive emergency department orders, but maybe hold on to them and don't, don't do anything with the order until the patient hits the floors. So I think that that's kind of the first way we can infiltrate the, the ED is just responding to those orders in a more timely way. So when we receive orders for stroke patients to open the chart, to screen the chart, to say, does this patient look medically stable for me? Would they be able to participate in a nursing swallow screen? Can I relieve some of that burden off of the emergency room nurse by just going myself and doing a full evaluation of the patient? And so starting there indefinitely, we're going to get mixed reviews by our physical presence in the emergency department. I think most nurses and emergency room physicians greet me warmly when I walk in, but there are a few saying, why is speech here? I don't understand. Um, you know, so I, I do think that we still have some education to do and, you know, within, within our own field too. I, I don't think that this is really clear cut. I think that there are a lot of speech pathologists out there who might disagree with, with us and say that, you know, we should be waiting longer. I just... My, my point is that whenever we're doing or not doing something, we should be able to explain why, explain our rationale and justify our rationale. And if you can't give me a sound reason as to why you're not seeing the patient, 
after you receive an order, then I think we just need to pause and rethink our process. Yeah. And so I think overall, just we'll get started in the ED with stroke protocol orders. And then once they, they see our value there and they see our presence and that we actually can help, maybe they'll think of us the next time a patient presents to the emergency room for swallowing complaints specifically, and it'll grow from there. Yeah, I do think, like like Kelsey said, we are greeted typically pretty warmly. And then those some ED nurses who are like, why are you here? They warm up to us pretty quickly also once they, they can also appreciate our value in the ED, how much we're caring for their patients. And then next time we, are, we return, they're like, oh, great, speech is here. Let's get started. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. So it was kind of something that evolved organically. You didn't just show up to the doctors one day and say, we're going to start going to the ED tomorrow. Yeah, absolutely. And I I do think, you know, that a slow organic approach is the best way probably to grow any department, to grow a speech pathology presence, at least in the acute care setting. So much of healthcare, it's just, it's a team sport and you have to trust each other. Um, You have to work on those relationships and work on maintaining those relationships all of the time because the stakes are really high. Emotions can be high. You know, everyone's doing their best for the patient. We're all on the same team. So the more organically we can kind of grow our relationships with physicians and nurses to the point that they trust us and they start to see our value, the better team members will be. Yeah. I love what you just said there, Kelsey. I think that's, you know, I I think everybody kind of knew this was a team sport in the beginning, but then I think the pandemic just magnified it. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think, you know, if we can take anything positive away from that, I think it's shown how well we all can work together and, you know, really yeah, support each other under crisis. Right, right. And that's part of our role. Our whole point about our role in the emergency department is imagine what kind of stress our emergency department nurses and physicians are under on a constant basis, the kinds of traumas they're seeing, the amount of triaging they have to do, prioritizing of patients and prioritizing of tasks. It's incredible. So, when our role is so specialized, when we exist in the hospital to evaluate primarily dysphagia and cognitive communication disorders, if if a patient presents for those things, I think that's our time to step up and help out the team and relieve some of that burden off of of our colleagues. And they'll thank us and respect us for that, I think. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And then, you know, I think Some of the last things we wanted to share today, I mean, we talked a lot about the types of patients who we see in the emergency room and how we go about, you know, receiving those orders. But on top of that, I think we wanted to kind of discuss some challenges in general that we face in the emergency department that are unique to that setting. And then some tips, I think, some tricks that we've learned along the way that might make lives easier for other acute care SLPs. Yeah, so definitely some of the challenges, like we mentioned earlier, it can be very chaotic in the emergency department which will affect, of course, our cognitive communication evaluations. And then also for these stroke patients, uh, we're waiting for imaging. We might not have those results yet, or we might start an evaluation and then the patient has to be wheeled away to do another procedure. 
If it's mm-hmm. trauma patients or even other patients, we definitely want to uh, be concerned about airway stabilization. And so we kind of assessing what the priorities are for the patient and backing off if we need to, but still trying to get in as much as we can while we can. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think just monitoring monitoring vital signs in the patient's respiratory status continuously Absolutely. while we're in the emergency mm-hmm. department is very important. Prioritizing emergent issues versus urgent issues versus routine issues, right? I think one challenge is also just that there we have really short deadlines. If we're going to say to our physician and nursing colleagues, hey, we'll help you out in the ED, we're going to be there when you put in an order, you then yeah. you better be there, right? <laughs> like you can't be taking 36 hours to respond to your orders. Your patient's not in the emergency room anymore. They're halfway out the hospital by now. So I, it's also comes, comes down to us, I think, really like making a priority our staffing, making sure that our speech departments in acute care are staffed appropriately so that we can respond to orders in a timely way. Because um, that's what it's all about. In acute care, in emergency department, it's about promptness. It's about how quickly can we respond. Um, and, you know, so instead of putting ED consults on the back burner saying these are the least important. Maybe, let's just think about it, are they actually more important? You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. And then what else? I mean, in t- tips in the emergency room, I think always, just like we do for any patient, um, I think all acute care SLPs are trained before you visit a patient, you always check in with the nurse, ask, may I see this patient? Is this patient NPO for any reason other than potential dysphagia? Because you don't want to be the speech pathologist feeding the patient who's NPO for surgery, for neurosurgery, right? Um, and postponing a potentially life-saving surgery. So we always, always, always need to stop and discuss with the emergency room nurse if we can see the patient, if the patient can have anything PO for our evaluation. And if the emergency room nurse is busy in a trauma, it's not the best time to interrupt that nurse. So, you know, stay out of the way of emergent things. Remember the priorities of the entire medical team in the emergency room recognize when you're needed, when you're wanted, and when you should just come back later. And definitely be flexible when you're in the emergency department. Anything can happen. You can see your patient. You might not be able to see your patient, but just be flexible. 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 Yeah. And you're prepared for anything. Yeah. I think the most flexible thing we've done is probably, you know, started a swallow evaluation and then the patient's getting a bed upstairs, but we're in the middle of our evaluation. So maybe like finishing the evaluation in the gurney in transport, (laughs) riding up up, with them, riding up the elevator (laughs) with them. Why not? I can assess my patient's cognition in the elevator. Really helps to build (laughs) rapport too. Yeah. 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 So you guys talked a little bit about that cognitive piece and the screening and the consultative role. Talk to me a little bit more about like actual diagnostics. Like, are you guys doing like fees right in the ED or is that, yeah. You know, I think just logistically it's difficult. Uh, um, It's difficult to do instrumentals in the ED, but I have done a handful of them and you know, I've done a few Uh, I've done a few fees in the emergency department for patients who presented for dysphagia and the physicians were actually unsure if the patient needed to be admitted. They said, you know, if the patient can swallow, 
a even a modified oral diet. We don't think this patient needs to be admitted. They could be managed on an outpatient basis, but if they need to be NPO, then we're going to admit them. So in those cases, I've done fees in the emergency department for the physicians, and that kind of helped guide the plan. Um, but more recently, I done a fees in the emergency department, which goes back to our point on COVID and this pandemic, because we were at, at a place where the capacity was so full. Our hospital was so full that I had a patient admitted for stroke in the emergency department for 48 hours. And the patient was NPO pending their instrumental swallow study. So if, in, if you're in a situation of a global pandemic without access to beds, how long does a patient need to stay NPO awaiting an instrumental, or can we just figure out a way to get it done there? Yeah. So, yeah. I absolutely love what you just said. As someone that used to work in, you know, long-term care and skilled nursing, I there's been so many patients that I've seen that, you know, it's like, what happened? You know, did you ever have your swallowing evaluated? And they would say, you know, no, I, and, and you talked about those kind of doctors that are trying to decide, you know, does, can this just be managed outpatient or do we need to admit them MPO? But I've had so many patients that said, you know, I got to the ER, they didn't know what to do. They moved us up to another floor, said an SLP would come, waited two days, didn't get an instrumental. So they had to discharge us. And so now I'm here, mm -hmm. still don't know why I can't swallow, you know, right. so I think and obviously there's a million logistics going on in acute care in the meantime. But I think, like you said, if you can even get to them before they even have to get to another floor or before they have to get admitted, or if they even don't even need to be admitted, um, that's, I, I just think of how many healthcare dollars in general could be saved by just being that emergent. Yeah, absolutely. And if, as speech pathologists, if we know that it can be a challenge to get video fluoroscopy and fees scheduled, if you know that it can take you up to 24 hours or 48 hours to get a video fluoroscopy completed in your hospital because of logistical concerns with radiology, with transport, whatever your barrier might be, then why don't we go just interview the patient and get them scheduled for that exam so that they, there isn't a delay in care? Absolutely. Okay. Well, you sold me. <laughs> <laughs> excellent. Excellent. And I mean, you know, th this is, this is purely, I think an opinion piece because there, there isn't research on it. And, you know, when you think about it, it's like, what, what research could actually be done? Like what would, what would be the point of investigating? I think that we, we do know that earlier interventions better if a patient presents with dysphagia earlier diagnostics would be there. And so the boundary would be, you know, medical stability versus early intervention. And I think we're kind of tiptoeing that line right there in both ICU, where I feel strongly we have a huge role, and the emergency department. Um, and sometimes patients in the emergency department are much more stable than the ICU patients we're working with anyways. Mm -hmm. All right. Anything else? <laughs> I don't think so. I think that I, I poured my heart out to you, Teresa. I don't know. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Anything else you want to add, Kat? I don't think so. Like we've been mentioning, just I think timing is everything. So early, early intervention, as soon as we can get there, as soon as we get the order, we should be there for our patients and figuring out the next steps for them. Yeah. I think I love what you said too, Kat, about, you know, you had you never learned in grad school. You had no idea that SLPs even had a role in the ER. So I think just having this conversation, even for, you know, grad students that might be listening, just knowing that this is something that, you know, they may be able to potentially 
encourage their facilities to do. Absolutely. And like Kelsey was saying, if you are in a facility that is not going into the emergency room, we can ask why. And if there is a if there is space for us there, obviously yes. <laughs> but make sure to be asking these questions. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Awesome. So that's our point. How, let me <laughs> I feel like our point is just like question everything. Why <laughs> question everything Always. you're doing and what you're not doing. <laughs> yeah. How do you Kelsey, let me ask you guys how you staff it. Like is it do you, do you have like one person, one SLP one day that, you know, is just responsible for ED orders or is it just kind of however it pops up or You know, so staffing the patient assignments in acute care hospitals vary dramatically. Um, though I know that many hospitals out there staff by units. Um, and that might be more practical for really, really large hospitals that have a lot of physical ground to cover. So you're not wasting time going between city blocks. Um, if you're talking about that kind of medical center, you know, our hospitals on a more small to like mid-sized um, size, we are about 320 beds. So we don't do our staffing by units. And I actually prefer to do that for the benefit of our clinicians also, because I don't necessarily think it's it's fair or what you know speech pathologists want is to only be seeing one type of patient all of the time, right? I think that we all benefit from different experiences and from different learning opportunities. So I don't try to put, you know, just one person in ICU and one person on this telemetry floor and one person in trauma and one in the ED. I think it's helpful if everyone's able to kind of see all patients across the spectrum. But, you know, there is definitely something to be said for specialization and for experience. So I'm not going to send someone to the emergency department who's never been there, who doesn't know how to get in, what the codes are. Um, but, you know, after some training, anyone on our team is able to go to the emergency department. And the way that we, you know, assign patients and, and pick up patients throughout the day is just a team approach who's available. So if I'm having an easy day and my patients are going swimmingly and everyone can eat and no one needs to study, um, then I can pick up that new ED order because I can get there immediately. If I'm, if, if Kat's having a really hard day um, and she, you know, every single patient she's seen today needs a fees and she can only do so many fees in a day, then she might call me to hand off a patient and say, oh, I took, I picked up this emergency department order, but I can't get there quickly. Can you do it for me? So that's how we do it. Awesome. I love it. Yeah teamwork. Right. Yeah. Awesome. All right. Well, thank you so much. You guys, it's been an awesome conversation. Yeah. Thank you so much. This was great. Thank you for having yeah. us. Thanks for joining us, Kat. Thank yeah. You. Kelsey. I'm thrilled that people might just start to rethink our roles in the emergency department. To download the show notes from this episode, please visit swallowyourpridepodcast.com. There you can also sign up for our email so that you'll never miss another episode. If you like what you hear, then please subscribe, leave a review on iTunes, and share it on social media with your friends and colleagues, because that is what keeps these episodes coming. If you'd like to be a guest, share feedback, or request a topic to be discussed on the show, please email podcast at teresarichard.com. Special credit to Danny V. Socrates for her amazing audio and editing skills and to Marissa Hendrickson for managing all the things behind the scenes. As always, thanks so much for listening and see you next week.